Chapter Nine, Part One of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Nine, Outdoors and Indoors, Part One. There are men who love out of doors who yet never open a book, and other men who love books, but to whom the great book of nature is a sealed volume and the lines written therein blurred and illegible. Nevertheless, among those men whom I have known, the love of books and the love of outdoors, in their highest expressions, have usually gone hand in hand. It is an affectation for the man who is praising outdoors to sneer at books. Usually, the keenest appreciation of what is seen in nature is to be found in those who have also profited by the hoarded and recorded wisdom of their fellow men. Love of outdoor life, love of simple and hearty pastimes, can be gratified by men and women who do not possess large means, and who work hard, and so can love of good books, not of good bindings and of first editions, excellent enough in their way, but sheer luxuries. I mean love of reading books, owning them, if possible, of course, but, if that is not possible, getting them from a circulating library." Sagamore Hill takes its name from the old Sagamore Mohannis, who, as chief of his little tribe, signed away his rights to the land two and a half centuries ago. The house stands right on top of the hill, separated by fields and belts of woodland from all other houses, and it looks out over the bay and the sound. We see the sun go down beyond long reaches of land and water. Many birds dwell in the trees round the house, or in the pastures, and the woods nearby, and, of course, in winter, gulls, loons, and wild fowl frequent the waters of the bay and the sound. We love all the seasons, the snows and bare woods of winter, the rush of growing things, and the blossom spray of spring, the yellow grain, the ripening fruits and tasseled corn, and the deep, leafy shades that are heralded by the green dance of summer, and the sharp fall winds that tear the brilliant banners with which the trees greet the dying year. The sound is always lovely. In the summer nights we watch it from the piazza, and see the lights of the tall Fall River boats as they steam steadily by. Now and then we spend a day on it, the two of us, together, in the light rowing skiff, or perhaps with one of the boys to pull an extra pair of oars, we land for lunch at noon under wind-beaten oaks, on the edge of a low bluff, or among the wild plum-bushes on a spit of white sand, while the sails of the coasting schooners gleam in the sunlight, and the tolling of the bell-buoy comes landward across the waters. Long Island is not as rich in flowers as the valley of the Hudson. Yet there are many. Early in April there is one hillside near us which glows like a tender flame with the white of the blood-root. About the same time we find the shy mayflower, the trailing arbutus, and although we rarely pick wild-flowers, one member of the household always plucks a little bunch of mayflowers to send to a friend working in Panama, whose soul hungers for the northern spring. Then there are shade-blow and delicate anemones, about the time of the cherry-blossoms, the brief glory of the apple-orchards follow, and then the thronging dogwoods fill the forests with their radiance, and so flowers follow flowers until the springtime splendor closes with the laurel and the evanescent honey-sweet locust bloom. The late summer flowers follow, like flaunting lilies, and cardinal flowers, and marshmallows, and pale peach rosemary, 
and the golden-rod and the asters, when the afternoon shortens and we again begin to think of fires in the wide fireplaces. Most of the birds in our neighborhood are the ordinary home friends of the house and the barn, the woodlot and the pasture, but now and then the species make queer shifts. The cheery quail, alas, are rarely found near us now, and we no longer hear the whippoorwills at night. But some birds visit us now which formerly did not. When I was a boy, neither the black-throated green warbler nor the purple finch nested around us, nor were bobolinks found in our fields. The black-throated green warbler is now one of our commonest summer warblers. There are plenty of purple finches, and best of all, the bobolinks are far from infrequent. I had written about these new visitors to John Burroughs, and once, when he came out to see me, I was able to show them to him. When I was president, we owned a little house in western Virginia, a delightful house, to us at least, although only a shell of rough boards. We used sometimes to go there in the fall, perhaps at Thanksgiving, and on these occasions we would have quail and rabbits of our own shooting, and once in a while a wild turkey. We also went there in the spring. Of course, many of the birds were different from our Long Island friends. There were mocking-birds, the most attractive of all birds, and blue grosbeaks, and cardinals and summer redbirds, instead of scarlet tanagers, and those wonderful singers, the Bewick's wrens, and Carolina wrens. All these I was able to show John Burroughs when he came to visit us, although, by the way, he did not appreciate as much as we did one set of inmates of the cottage, the flying squirrels. We loved having the flying squirrels, father and mother and half-grown young, in their nest among the rafters, and at night we slept so soundly that we did not in the least mind the wild gambols of the little fellows through the rooms, even when, as sometimes happened, they would swoop down to the bed and scuttle across it. One April I went to Yellowstone Park, when the snow was still very deep, and I took John Burroughs with me. I wished to show him the big game of the park, the wild creatures that had become so astonishingly tame and tolerant of human presence. In the Yellowstone the animals seem always to behave as one wishes them to. It is always possible to see the sheep and deer and antelope, and also the great herds of elk, which are shyer than the smaller beasts. In April we found the elk weak after the short commons and hard living of winter. Once, without much difficulty, I regularly rounded up a big band of them, so that John Burroughs could look at them. I do not think, however, that he cared to see them as much as I did. The birds interested him more, especially a tiny owl the size of a robin, which we saw perched on the top of a tree in mid-afternoon, entirely uninfluenced by the sun, and making a queer noise like a cork being pulled from a bottle. I was rather ashamed to find out how much better his eyes were than mine in seeing the birds and grasping their differences. When wolf-hunting in Texas, and when bear-hunting in Louisiana and Mississippi, I was not only enthralled by the sport, but also by the strange new birds and other creatures, and the trees and flowers I had not known before. By the way, there was one feast at the White House which stands above all others in my memory, even above the time when I lured Joel Chandler Harris thither for a night, a deed in which to triumph, as all who knew that inveterately shy recluse will testify. This was the bear-hunter's dinner. I had been treated so kindly by my friends on these hunts, and they were such fine fellows, men whom I was so proud to think of as Americans, that I set my heart on having them at a hunter's dinner at the White House. One December I succeeded. 
There were twenty or thirty of them, all told, as good hunters, as daring riders, as first-class citizens as could be found anywhere. No finer set of guests ever sat at meat in the White House, and among other game on the table was a black bear, itself contributed by one of these same guests. When I first visited California, it was my good fortune to see the big trees, the sequoias, and then to travel down into the Yosemite, with John Muir. Of course, of all people in the world, he was the one with whom it was best worth while to thus see the Yosemite. He told me that when Emerson came to California he tried to get him to come out and camp with him, for that was the only way in which to see, at their best, the majesty and charm of the Sierras. But at the time Emerson was getting old and could not go. John Muir met me with a couple of packers and two mules to carry our tent, bedding, and food for a three days' trip. The first night was clear, and we lay down in the darkening aisles of the great sequoia grove. The majestic trunks, beautiful in color and in symmetry, rose round us like the pillars of a mightier cathedral than ever was conceived even by the fervor of the Middle Ages. Hermit thrushes sang beautifully in the evening, and again with a burst of wonderful music at dawn. I was interested and a little surprised to find that, unlike John Burroughs, John Muir cared little for birds or bird-songs, and knew little about them. The hermit-thrushes meant nothing to him, the trees and the flowers and the cliffs, everything. The only birds he noticed or cared for were some that were very conspicuous, such as the water-oosels, always a particular favorite of mine, too. The second night we camped in a snowstorm, on the edge of the canyon walls, under the spreading limbs of a grove of mighty silver fir, and next day we went down into the wonderland of the valley itself. I shall always be glad that I was in the Yosemite with John Muir, and in the Yellowstone with John Burroughs. Like most Americans interested in birds and books, I know a good deal about English birds as they appear in books. I know the lark of Shakespeare and Shelley, and the Ettrick Shepherd, I know the nightingale of Milton and Keats. I know Wordworth's cuckoo. I know Mavis and Merle singing in the merry green wood of the old ballads. I know Jenny Wren and Cock Robin of the nursery books. Therefore, I had always much desired to hear the birds in real life, and the opportunity offered in June, 1910, when I spent two or three weeks in England. As I could snatch but a few hours from a very exciting round of pleasures and duties, it was necessary for me to be with some companion who could identify both song and singer. In Sir Edward Grey, a keen lover of outdoor life in all its phases, and a delightful companion, who knows the songs and ways of English birds as very few do know them, I found the best possible guide. We left London on the morning of June ninth, twenty-four hours before I sailed from Southampton. Getting off the train at Basingstoke, we drove to the pretty, smiling valley of the Itchen. Here we tramped for three or four hours, then again drove, this time to the edge of the new forest, where we first took tea at an inn, and then tramped through the forest to an inn on its other side, at Brockenhurst. At the conclusion of our walk my companion made a list of the birds we had seen, putting an asterisk opposite those which we had heard sing. There were forty-one of the former, and twenty-three of the latter, as follows birds which they both saw and heard. Thrush, blackbird, lark, yellowhammer, robin, wren, gold-crested wren, goldfinch, chawfinch, greenfinch, dunnock, blackcap, golden warbler, willow warbler, chiff-chaff, wood warbler, reed-bunting, sedge-warbler, turtle-dove, cuckoo, night-jar, and swallow. Birds which they only saw. Pied-wagtail, sparrow, sparrow, 
hedgeack center, mistlethrush, starling, rook, jackdaw, tree-creeper, coot, water-hen, little greb, dab-chick, tufted duck, wood-pigeon, stock-dove, pee-wit, tit, or coal-tit, martin, swift, pheasant, and partridge. The valley of the Itchen is typically the England that we know from novel and story and essay. It is very beautiful in every way, with a rich, civilized, fertile beauty, the rapid brook twisting among its reed-beds, the rich green of trees and grass, the stately woods, the gardens and fields, the exceedingly picturesque cottages, the great, handsome houses standing in their parks. Birds were plentiful. I know but few places in America where one would see such an abundance of individuals, and I was struck by seeing such large birds as coots, water-hens, grebs, tufted ducks, pigeons, and peewits. In places in America as thickly settled as the Valley of the Itchen, I should not expect to see any like number of birds of this size, but I hope that the efforts of the Audubon societies and kindred organizations will gradually make themselves felt, until it becomes a point of honor, not only with the American man, but with the American small boy, to shield and protect all forms of harmless wildlife. True sportsmen should take the lead in such a movement, for if there is to be any shooting there must be something to shoot. The prime necessity is to keep, and not kill out, even the birds which in legitimate numbers may be shot. The new forest is a wild, uninhabited stretch of heath and woodland, many of the trees gnarled and aged, and its very wildness, the lack of cultivation, the ruggedness, made it strongly attractive in my eyes, and suggested my own country. The birds, of course, were much less plentiful than beside the itchin. The bird that most impressed me on my walk was the blackbird. I had already heard nightingales in abundance near Lake Cuomo, and had also listened to larks, but I had never heard either the blackbird, the song-thrush, or the black-cap warbler, and while I knew that all three were good singers, I did not know what really beautiful singers they were. Blackbirds were very abundant, and they played a prominent part in the chorus which we heard throughout the day on every hand, though perhaps loudest the following morning at dawn. In its habits and manners the blackbird strikingly resembles our American robin, and indeed looks exactly like a robin, with a yellow bill and coal-black plumage. It hops everywhere over the lawns, just as our robin does, and it lives in nests in the gardens in the same fashion. Its song has a general resemblance to that of our robin, but many of the notes are far more musical, more like those of our wood-thrush. Indeed, there were individuals among those we heard, certain of whose notes seemed to me almost to equal in point of melody the chimes of the wood-thrush, and the highest possible praise for any song-bird is to liken its song to that of the wood-thrush or hermit-thrush. I certainly do not think that the blackbird has received full justice in the books. I knew that he was a singer, but I really had no idea how fine a singer he was. I suppose one of his troubles has been his name, just as with our own catbird. When he appears in the ballads as the Merle, bracketed with his cousin the Mavis, the song-thrush, it is far easier to recognize him as the master singer that he is. It is a fine thing for England to have such an asset of the countryside, a bird so common, so much in evidence, so fearless, and such a really beautiful singer. The thrush is a fine singer, too, a better singer than our American robin, but to my mind not at the best quite as good as the blackbird at his best, although often I found difficulty in telling the song of one from the song of the other, especially if I only heard two or three notes. The larks were, of course, exceedingly attractive. 
It was fascinating to see them spring from the grass, circle upwards, steadily singing and soaring for several minutes, and then return to the point whence they had started. As my companion pointed out, they exactly fulfilled Wordsworth's description. They soared, but did not roam. It is quite impossible wholly to differentiate a bird's voice from its habits and surroundings. Although in the lark's song there are occasional musical notes, the song as a whole is not very musical. But it is so joyous, buoyant, and unbroken, and uttered under such conditions as fully to entitle the bird to the place he occupies, with both poet and prose writer. The most musical singer we heard was the black-cap warbler. To my ear its song seemed more musical than that of the nightingale. It was astonishingly powerful for so small a bird. In volume and continuity it does not come up to the songs of the thrushes and of certain other birds, but in quality, as an isolated bit of melody, it can hardly be surpassed. Among the minor singers the robin was noticeable. We all know this pretty little bird from the books, and I was prepared to find him as friendly and attractive as he proved to be, but I had not realized how well he sang. It is not a loud song, but very musical and attractive, and the bird is said to sing practically all through the year. The song of the wren interested me much, because it was not in the least like that of our house wren, but on the contrary, like that of our winter wren. But the song did not seem to me to be as brilliantly musical as that of the tiny singer of the north woods. The sedge warbler sang in the thick reeds a mocking ventriloquial lay, which reminded me at times of the less pronounced parts of our yellow-breasted chat song. The cuckoo's cry was singularly attractive and musical, far more so than the rolling, many times repeated, note of our rain-crow. We did not reach the inn at Brockenhurst until about nine o'clock, just at nightfall, and a few minutes before that we heard a night-jar. It did not sound in the least like either our whippoorwill or our night-hawk, uttering a long-continued call of one or two syllables, repeated over and over. The chaffinch was very much in evidence, continually chaunting its unimportant little ditty. I was pleased to see the bold, masterful missile-thrush, the storm-cock, as it is often called, but this bird breeds and sings in the early spring, when the weather is still tempestuous, and had long been silent when we saw it. The starlings, rooks, and jackdaws did not sing, and their calls were attractive merely as the calls of our gackles are attractive, and the other birds that we heard sing, though they played their part in the general chorus, were performers of no especial note like our tree-creepers, pine-warblers, and chipping-sparrows. The great spring chorus had already begun to subside, but the woods and fields were still vocal, with beautiful bird music. The country was very lovely, the inn as comfortable as possible, and the bath and supper very enjoyable after our tramp, and altogether I passed no pleasanter twenty-four hours during my entire European trip. End of chapter 9, part 1